Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties just like in 1776. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Thursday, November 11th. It is Veterans Day. This is a day that we uh, celebrate and commemorate the sacrifices of our veterans from Omaha Beach to Okinawa, Iwo Jima, there's very few of those left. Korean War, Vietnam War, um, Desert Storm. And you know what? Even obviously in Afghanistan and Iraq, even though our government was so wrongheaded and put them into a meat grinder, but the sacrifice of so many people from Fallujah to all those places in the Tangi Valley in, in Afghanistan. And the sad thing is, it's a very grim Veterans Day because... They always fought for freedom because we had a home country for them to come back to that was the beacon of freedom. And now we not only have fascism and tyranny, Pfizer fascism, but the worst form of it, this venture socialism, this biomedical state that's nameless and faceless, together with executive branches cutting out any representative process to own our bodies, own our health care, own our choices. Think life and death decisions, care that is vital to us, they deny what would uh, harm us, they force upon us. So we're going to talk a little bit later today with uh, one of our frontline doctors who's really become an expert in this issue of the medical tyranny that's been brewing long before COVID, but crystallized with COVID, and what we need to do to fight for healthcare freedom, which is really the lead ship in this armada in our battle for, for all of freedom against tyranny. So there's tons of stuff going on in state legislatures, in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and, and what that represents, federal judges doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, I, the, the hospitals are now full, I'm told, with all sorts of injuries that are clearly from the vaccines. And then you have other places that are universally vaccinated from New Mexico to Vermont to Belgium and Central Europe that are just full of COVID patients as well because the vaccines don't work. We have some new studies I'm going to have out on natural immunity working so well. It works even in organ transplant patients, whereas the vaccine fails those people um, more than anyone else. And then all our strategies for the midterms, as we talked about, our you know idea of a new pledge to America, a new rallying cry. Um, a constitutional amendment in every state. State constitutional amendments in red states are very easy to get on on bodily autonomy. All the different action items we have, we're going to pull together. Um, first, our sponsor today. You know, it's funny. We're being told that businesses could do whatever they want. They could discriminate against people, anything they don't want, but only when it comes to the clot shots. But in reality, as you well know, we regulate the heck out of businesses. And the HR issues are insane. Okay. Let, let, let's face it, you can't look at certain people the wrong way without having issues. Whether it's uh, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regs, um, HR can kill your business. You have people that have a great idea, they start a business, and like, whoops, now I have to deal with the government. An average HR manager salary is $70,000 a year. What if I told you that Bambi could get you a dedicated HR manager, craft your HR policy, maintain your compliance, for 99 bucks a month. That's about 1200 a year rather than 70000 What they do is they assign a specific person. It's not like you have like a call center or something. Uh, so they're familiar with their business. They're available anytime by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business. And, and also, you don't have to sign on for a year. It's month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on stupid government regs. Go to Bambi.com slash conservative right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's BAM to the B, B-A-M-B-E-E, 
com slash conservative. So, you know, speaking of that, it's funny. All these Republicans that have no problem regulating businesses, some, suddenly they're like, ah, I don't want to tell businesses they can't mandate uh, against your bodily integrity and violate the number code when the feds are mandating that they must do it. You know, embodied through what is going on, there is a comment by the Ohio speaker, this dirtbag Bob Cup from Lima, it's like Jim Jordan's area of the state. He said it's clearly time to move on. Now, he didn't mean it's time to move on from the fascism. He meant it's time to move on from COVID legislation to battle what's going on. That, my friends, is the mentality of these guys. And he actually admitted that the only reason why his members are coming to him is because their constituents are angry, which, again, tells you why absent our Constitution Action groups to get involved were screwed. But if you do, you really could either force their hand or target them and have votes and then get them out in the primaries. This is our job. It's a very revealing statement from the Ohio House Speaker. But it also demonstrates that these Republicans left to their own devices, if we didn't pressure them, they are not bothered at all. Forget about the debt and values that we know they don't care about. But even something like this, I mean, they've all had friends and family that have died or been injured from the shot or from COVID, getting maltreatment, and you think they want to deal? No. Left to their own devices, they do nothing. You know, Lindsey Graham recently came out with a statement um, where he basically said, look, Joe Biden's been a good friend of mine. We disagree on a lot of things. But for what he did with Afghanistan, I can't forgive him. So no problem declaring the Fourth Reich, the needle rape, all the stuff he's done with the border, no problem. But Afghanistan, that's what gets their juices flowing. A lot of you might have seen um, that exchange with this. I think it was also Ohio congressman um, and Tucker Carlson about Ukraine. And Tucker was like, why are you so jazzed up about Ukraine's sovereignty given what's going on here? It's just... This is the Republican Party we have, and this is the Republican Party we will continue to have if we don't change the game, focusing on gubernatorial and legislative primaries, focusing on making state legislatures robust and great again and pressuring them, focusing on a new contract with America, focusing on state constitutional amendments, all my ideas that I want to push. I know I have a lot of them. Maybe some are goofier than others, but some inevitably are good. Let me give you an anecdote to demonstrate this. Um, North Dakota, we have a lot of great stuff going on there. We'll know by today or tomorrow whether we'll get some of the vaccine mandate bills. And there's a bill protecting doctors, ivermectin, right to try in the hospital, mandating uh, pharmacies prescribe, banning any medical boards from going after them. Uh, for prescribing, as well as protecting discrimination in the hospitals against people that don't get the the shots. It's HB 1514, I believe. Um, Amber is our state team leader. She I spoke to her last night. She has done a terrific job there, um, really getting that special session and getting the bills. Uh, Steve Dace spoke remotely at their rally. Um, so she sends me a letter from the State Department of Health in North Dakota. So every Republican governor is like, we don't support vaccine mandates. But the reality is, they have all indulged it in all but rhetoric. They've indulged the science, the premise, and even this far, this is, this, and, and it's not like this is a while ago, this is November 8th, just a few days ago. The state of North Dakota intends to make a purchase for which we believe there is no competition. It's like a purchasing notice. It's for QR codes that people could download to maintain a custom COVID-19 immunization certificate. QR code. It's not just that they're like, I mean, pushing the vaccine, indulging it, but like, okay, we at least oppose passports and mandates, but we really think everyone should get it. That's bad enough. No, they're putting in a purchase order this is happening right now in North Dakota. Four to one majorities in the legislature, trifecta control. Trump won it by more than 30 points. And they have QR codes that they want to make. Oh, well, we want to make it convenient in case you go to New York or something. That's what they're saying. Folks, with this anecdote, 
I want to I want to explain to you um what once and for all what I mean when I say that often it's worse when Republicans are in charge and it's meaningless to elect Republicans over Democrats unless you change the our strategy of how we engage in the states, how we engage our activism and primaries. And a lot of people have a hard time believing it because they're like, Daniel, I understand these guys are goofballs, but like, come on, they're not as radical as Democrats. They're not going to, um, you know, promote, initiate the same bad stuff. I understand they might not push back against it as much as you want, but they're not going to initiate it, right? So if you get them all in power, they're certainly not going to do it on their own. It's got to be marginally better than the left. Um, I know, you know, they're not going to erase the existing bad stuff, but at least it, it staunches the bleeding of the new bad stuff, right? It's got it's got to be that way. And it's a thought process I've developed over the last number of years, but it's crystallized with COVID fascism. And it's something that people don't understand. <clears throat> they don't understand at all. And I want to I wanna get to this, but first, our sponsor for this segment is 7cells.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-C-E-L-L-S.com. This is the pharmacy in Florida that both has prescriptions and dispensing of both ivermectin and nitazoxanide, the two viral antiviral agents recommended by the FLCCC CCC for um, uh, COVID, uh, to combat COVID. Um, and folks, if you have a better way of getting it, that's great. But if you don't, this is the place. You sign up online, you purchase anywhere from 10 to 60 ivermectin pills, and I forget how many nitazoxanide pills. Promo code Daniel gives you, coupon Daniel gives you 20% off. Put in your order, and then they'll have you fill out an online form that takes five minutes. You upload your driver's license, and boom. Um, it works in 43 out of 50 states. In seven states, they can't ship it to you but you can still order it and get a prescription and you just have to ship it to a friend, relative, or P.O. box that you have in another state and, and get it to you that way. So again, this is the only synergistic operation where the pharmacy has doctors that will prescribe it to you preemptively and they'll fill it. They do have some limitations if you're pregnant, if you're a child, if you have certain health conditions. So you know it's up to you how much information you choose to disclose on that when they ask. Uh, use your brain. Um, these are 0.2 milligram pills. So if you're, you know, like 150 pounds, that will be 14 milligrams. If you're more like 200, it'll be closer to 1820, whatever. And they'll peg it to your weight. So it's not those little bitty three milligram, uh, pills. If you have issues, you could email me dharwitz at blazemedia.com and I can get Tim on the case, but generally it's worked for most people. Again, that's seven cells.com promo code Daniel. So back to this point, let me indulge you with a hypothetical. Let's say Republicans win the greatest election ever. And it's not really unforeseeable. 270, 280 House seats. They pick up five, seven seats in the Senate, don't lose a single Senate seat, so they get 55, 57 Senate seats. They get 33 governorships, 30 trifectas, Record state dominance, record number of legislators, win up and down the county, local office, basically wipe the Democrats off the map except for, you know, the West Coast, Illinois, and areas in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. Okay, just wipe them off the map. Unbelievable election. And they come in with that mandate. Now, I'm not even, I think you guys don't even need me to tell you that at a federal level, Biden's still president, so they're going to say we need the presidency. And even with such a mandate in Congress, with Biden 20% approval rating, let's say, and let's just indulge hypothetical that Trump doesn't run. I know he's likely to run, but he doesn't run, so you don't have that backlash and that distraction. So you have a fresh face, no Republican to shoot at, but Biden's unpopular. Now he stands for re-election. So it's kind of like the worst scenario for Democrats because Republicans will have most of the control in the states dominance in Congress, all they have is a presidency, but that's what people focus on. So it's still viewed as the Democrats are in charge, so he has the liability of being in charge, but no leverage. This is really the best place to have him. 
But I think you know by now, Mitch McConnell is going to be Senate Majority Leader. Most of the senators are rhinos. McCarthy is going to be House Majority Leader. They will not use brinkmanship on the budget bills, on the debt ceiling bills, and like you know other must-pass bills like the Farm Bill or uh, National Defense Authorization Act. And they'll be like, oh, we can't have a government shutdown. I don't even need to tell you that, that they're going to wimp out on that, even though they would have all the leverage to stare him down, and Biden is the one who would get shellacked from it. But they're not going to do that, and you know that already. Okay. But Daniel, at least it will arrest new bad things from happening. Well, first of all, not really, because as you well know, it doesn't pass Congress. The executive branch does just does it. Congress might hold hearings, but they're not going to use the budget bills to block it, and the states aren't going to block it either, and the courts aren't going to block it, and the states won't block it unless we, again, focus on the state legislatures, push them to do certain things, and get better people in those respective offices. But left to their own devices, if we don't do that, and you have the same Republicans getting elected, it's not going to happen. But Daniel, at least... We're going to block new bad stuff. Well, I already showed you one way it could come, but let me explain another way. Well, Daniel, you know, they're not going to do radical things. Like, this stuff starts only when they have the Democrats started, they have power, but they're going to block it. No. This is what this North Dakota thing shows, because, folks, Republicans would never have come up with the idea off the bat. Everyone needs to lock down, everyone needs to wear a mask, and everyone needs to get a shot. I agree with you. Republicans wouldn't have on their own done that. But I think we forget Republicans had more than half the states, the presidency, and the Senate when it happened, right? We, we don't even need to have a hypothetical because it happened. The only thing they didn't have was the House of Representatives. But let me indulge this hypothetical. What people forget is there's something else that the left always controls, the media, the medical establishment, the science establishment, popular culture, the businesses, the foundations. In other words, they control everything. So you don't need, even if Democrats got wiped off the map politically, they don't need the presidency or Congress or the state governments to launch their jihad. They'll create a virus Let's say COVID is over with. They'll create another one. They'll say, look, we're finding out that COVID created something in people that's long-term that makes it that it spreads. They'll have very believable imagery. Think Lombardi in New York City that people are dying. And sometimes it might be exaggerated. Sometimes it might be true. But again, they created it. And what they're positing is what is going to harm it and what should solve it. They're blocking the same, same thing. We've lived through this. And Republicans will be like, holy crap, I know we believe in limited government, but this is an exception. People are dying, and we got to do this. If you think that can happen, even after having just won an election, that's hypothetically, but it could very well happen, the greatest GOP victory in the history of, of the Republican Party since 1860, if you don't think of that, you've been dead the last two years. That's the thing. It's not like it's a piece of legislation proposed by a Democrat or even an executive policy initially that you'll say, well, if the Democrats aren't in charge, Republicans as bad as they are, they're not going to initiate something that radical. No, you don't need them to initiate it. The media, science, medical, all the doctors, they'll initiate it and say, this is what we must do. And they'll have imagery. And if you don't have a party with both intellectual and ideological impervious values to, to like, no, you're liars. You created it. Here's the problem. We sure as heck aren't doing that. You're the ones causing the problem. Here's what we're going to do. If you don't have that movement and those type of elected officials in place, in many ways, it's even worse because when the Democrats are there, there's a little bit of a check and balance. They're scared of losing the power. So, you know, scared of going so far, at least in a, in a you know, competitive state. California, they'll never be scared. But you got Republicans in charge. They're terrified. They're going to go along with it. This is what people don't understand. It is literally meaningless. Meaningless. If you don't fight on 
with a new strategy on a new playing field with new ideas, with a new type of, for now, elected Republicans until we get a new party. I challenge anyone to show where I'm wrong on that. There is nowhere to move beyond what I'm saying, and anyone not pushing this is, 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 is selling you a Nigerian prince scam. This is not a supposition. This is what will happen. If we would ever get, let's say, dream scenario, courts put an injunction on every last COVID fascism and we get out of this for now. And we go on, have a pretty decent 2022 quiet year. Republicans win historic margins. Come to 2023. Democrats aren't stupid. They're not like, oh man, we lost all the power. What are we going to do? No, <laughs> they, they get, they launch most of their jihads when they're, when they're in the minority because they control everything else. So if you don't find ways to use your power, not just to not get involved in what they're doing and countenance it like North Dakota is with QR codes on vaccine passports, but to downright use the power you have to neutralize what's going on in the medical system, it's, it's meaningless. Now, with that, I want to get to our next guest to talk about this. So what does our next guest have to do with what we're talking about? Now, we're talking about how the House, the Senate, the presidency, state legislatures, governors, it's not the only platform through which the left uh, impels their values and their policies upon us. Ultimately, it is the executive branch that they use all the time. But it starts with another branch of government that they control, which is really one with government, and all sorts of areas of the so-called private sector. Now, if medical tyranny and healthcare freedom are the biggest issues of our lifetime, well, that's the biggest area for which we need to work on curing not just you know getting good members of you know, legislatures and governors, but how do we fix it in the culture and in the industries and particularly in the medical field in this example? What sort of policies do we need to push to change that. Because remember that a big part of why they succeeded is not just because they had, you know, different areas of government. Remember, Trump was president, Republicans had the Senate, Republicans had more than half the state governments, and we had the worst fascism in the history of the settlement of this continent. It was because of the unanimity of opinion among the medical establishment that this is what must happen. Right? That is clearly, you know, people would go to their doctors and they'd be, all be bought into it. Now, obviously, it's not really unanimity of opinion because it's all coming from one source and they all drink out of it. Where does this come from? Where does this, where did this start? It didn't start with COVID. You know, I think Obamacare, as we said, had a lot to do with crystallizing this monopolization of systems that are in with government rather than independent practices. But this has been going on for a while. What's the origin what other collateral damage are we seeing aside from COVID? And what could we do about it? With us to discuss this and more is Dr. Richard Ammerling. Um, he's a board-certified internist and nephro nephrologist. Uh, that's a kidney doctor for those of you who don't know what a nephrologist is. He's a past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. AAPS is, uh, is really the best uh, medical freedom group out there. Um, he is on the editorial board of blood purification. He worked at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital in New York for 26 years. Um, he specializes in uh, peritoneal dialysis as well as renal replacement therapy. Um, so very familiar with um, you know organ transplant patients. And maybe if we have time, we'll get to uh, those people in COVID. Most importantly, he's now currently associate medical director of America's Frontline Doctors. AFLDS.org. Um, they do consultations, a lot of good work. If if you wanna, um, you know, get ivermectin, it's another source um, of getting tr not just ivermectin but consultation and treatment. And you could follow him at Dr. Amerling. That's D R A M E R L I N G on Twitter. Dr. Amerling, thanks so much for joining us today. A great honor, Daniel. Really great to uh, be on your show. Well, there's a lot to cover in a short period of time, and I want to start off with something you've really been writing about a lot. Um, you've wrote, wrote about this on AAPS's website, and 
I want to talk about it. You talk about what what's known as EBS, evidence-based medicine, where we have the tyranny of evidence-based medicine, where the medical establishment in cahoots with the NIH, the government, they basically come down with saying Orwellian, so that well, we only go with evidence-based stuff, and and you know things that have a lot of promise. They're like that's not evidence-based, and then the things they will push actually have the least evidence behind it. And so people are very familiar with, hence the clot shots slash remdesivir versus you know all the protocols we have and we've been developing with things like ivermectin. This juxtaposition of that is truly unbelievable. But you, in fact, believe that this has been going on for a while. Could you describe the nature and source and consequences of this evidence-based medicine tyranny that you've been warning about for many years? Uh, sure. It's it's a long story, and hopefully we'll be able to do a part two because I, I'm not sure we're going to get it all in. But what's happened over the last 20-plus years in, in medicine has been – Two things. One has been a gradual takeover of independent medical practices by corporate and government-run practices. And it used to be that 90% of doctors had independent uh, practices, private offices. Now it's 90% are in the hospital. <clears throat> Only 10% are in, outside and independent. And this has been a horrific trend. Yeah. Uh, largely driven by changes in reimbursement, uh, <clears throat> the requirement for electronic health records, all these things that were pushed through under different administrations going back 20 years. So that's one trend. Now, the other one has been the gradual takeover of traditional scientific medicine, but what by what has become called evidence-based medicine or EBM. And Evidence-based medicine got its start in the 90s, mostly by the work of David Sackett, physician uh, scientist, who was promoting the use of what he called the best evidence in clinical decision-making. The problem is that he set up a system that, cr that created a hierarchy of evidence with the randomized controlled trial at the top and uh, what they call you know, clinical experience or anecdotes at the bottom. So they devalued physicians' actual experience, which was a major problem because the, the experience of, of a physician is absolutely crucial in the practice of medicine. And to deny this is to deny reality. And they promoted the randomized controlled trial. And later on, the meta-analysis came to be up there at the top as well. And these are statistical uh, studies, fundamentally, of populations. So you take a population of some size and you study it in a randomized manner and you come up with a conclusion. Well, there's never enough information in such studies to be able to help you treat an individual patient in your practice. So the promotion of EBM led to tyranny. And, you know, I quote in the article from this book, which I highly recommend, Tarnished Gold by Hickey and Roberts. It says EBM, they say EBM encourages totalitarian medicine. It is, it is displacing the doctor-patient unit as the ultimate decision-making authority. Peer review is used as censorship. EBM is a self-referential closed system where critical appraisal means checking whether a study conforms to its rules. So-called EBM wrongly claims the authority of medical and scientific gold standards. It, in fact, repackages and uses concepts from legal proof in an attempt to impose a medical dictatorship. EBM enables corporate medicine to redefine science as a form of advertising. Everything that they said here, and this is many years ago, is true, and it's wow. happened. Governments use EBM to control medicine. EBM allows governments to generate executive organizations, such as the NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK, the FDA in the US, the CDC, et cetera, the WHO, these organizations initiate a top-down managerial hierarchy that allows governmental and legislative control. Often the people making the decisions are not fully independent doctors or scientists, or not doctors and scientists at all. There's no scientific support for the NICE and similar government governmental organizations. They are justified by political needs balanced by those of corporate medicine. I mean, this was absolutely way ahead of its time. 
and right on every account. Wow. I, I mean, I think people listening to this could obviously relate. They see it right now where you have all these independent doctors that independently are treating thousands of patients. And they're like, look, you know, this this cocktail of early treatment really works, whereas remdesivir not only doesn't work, but it's likely causing collateral damage. And it doesn't matter. It's like, shut up. We don't have enough double-blinded studies. Well, okay, but where are your double-blinded studies on remdesivir? In fact, the ones that we did are, are negative and you know it doesn't doesn't work and I'm like well shut up so you're saying it was a two-step process you, you leverage medicare medicaid the insurance cartel and it all mixes because you know the insurance cartel administers the the medicaid so you do have a public system that's not really fully public a private system that's not fully private it all mixes together as venture socialism and then that creates it creates the mergers acquisitions that we've been seeing uh, all the regulations paperwork that individuals you know can't handle so you get shoved into a system so it's a lot easier to control you know 20 30 40 50 systems than a million individual doctors and then boom we got you all right here's the protocols we want um right. it doesn't matter what works on the ground it doesn't work here are this is the evidence base so that's what's been happening could you talk a little bit about pre-covid um you're a nephrologist you obviously work a lot with dialysis kidneys um but you know either in your specialty or in general where you've seen other devastating consequences of this, you know, EBM tyranny. Yeah. In fact, I first became aware of this. I mean, I, I saw EBM come up and I sort of brushed it aside. Yeah, big deal. Uh, you know, we're continuing to practice scientific medicine. Uh, of course, we know that there are randomized controlled trials. EBM didn't just didn't create them. They've been around a long time. Okay. But we always use these in conjunction with our understanding of under of science, pathophysiology, et cetera, and pathology, biochemistry. But in nephrology, they started to creep into the practice in the early 2000s. And that's really what got me intrigued. And I looked into it heavily and I realized that this is very suspect. So there were guidelines committees that were formed uh, under the influence largely of Amgen, the major uh, biopharmaceutical company, that had produced a drug called Epogen, which which stimulates red blood cell pr production and treats anemia in chronic kidney disease patients. So they put together the first nephrology guidelines, which were called DOKI, uh, Dialysis Outcomes Quality Initiative. And when you look at it, it was largely a uh, an advertising forum for their drug, EPO. And they specified dosing and target ranges, okay, target ranges for what level of treat of hemoglobin do you want to achieve in these patients. And that was always completely arbitrary. And it ignored the fact that most of these patients have a diluted hemoglobin and therefore look anemic, but may not really be anemic. They're overloaded with salt and water, so their hemoglobin concentration goes down. And that's not real anemia. And to treat those patients with a drug that, that makes you make red blood cells is probably not a good idea. And in fact, when they ultimately did test the drug in a uh, placebo-controlled fashion, and they didn't initially, by the way, they were shown to increase harm, especially when pushing to higher levels of hemoglobin. And there were other guidelines in nephrology that I uh, saw through as advertising for treatment of uh, bone disease. The bone disease that we see in patients with chronic kidney disease was heavily influenced by guidelines that were mostly drawn up out of uh, out of thin air. I mean, there was very little science underpinning them. They were consensus statements. And when you look at the disclosures of the panelists who write these guidelines, almost 100% of them were industry-funded in many ways, either through consulting yeah. fees, speaker fees, research grants, et cetera. They were, they were biased. And wow. this is the problem with this whole approach to medicine. It introduces industry bias into medical decision-making. So we now don't have real medicine anymore. We have pharma-controlled medicine at every level. And I saw this even when I was teaching medicine the last few years at St. George's University. You know, one of the interesting things, I think a lot of people have had this hunch for many years that a lot of the drugs they push, you know, the whole cholesterol hoax and uh, with that, that and obviously, you know, the ADHD stuff clearly is not necessary and often harmful. 
and is all driven by greed and profit. But what a lot of us have thought less about, and, and the whole ivermectin debate really, and hydroxychloroquine really rejuvenated, is the cures that you don't see, but they're out there. And and it was funny when everyone was talking about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Like a lot of people, I never heard of either drug, uh, you know, last year. Like, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, so is that a new drug? And then I'm like, oh, wow, there's a wealth of decades of research like man why is this not being used and you know you know for example we were talking a lot about nitazoxanide which is the other viral agent uh, antiviral agent that uh, the fl triple c recommends um based on flavio's uh dr flavio's uh, recommendations from Br brazil and his experience with it and you look there's like a wealth of research rsv hepatitis flu like man like people suffer from rsv and the flu like why aren't why aren't we like taking that research to the next level and then all these drugs hydroxy ivermectin and nitazoxanide all seem to have a lot of robust yet dormant research on cancer although just this year in nature it was published uh very promising research on, at least in vitro maybe, with uh, uh, ivermectin and breast cancer. It's like, wait a minute. Why aren't we following up on that? And then after we experienced what, you know, this past year, I'm like, oh, that's why we're not following up on it. I get, I get the game. So my question is, like, is there this feeling out there that if we got a group of independent physicians out there that for a host of other ailments – we are treating it wrong, often harmfully, and there's a lot of better things out there, perhaps with cancer. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say that the majority of pharmaceutical treatments that are administered on a daily basis are harmful. They, uh, they, they do not help, but they're supposed to be helping, and they are, in fact, harmful. I mean, the treatment of uh, high, high cholesterol, by the way, which is a made-up disease, frankly, uh, and the treatment of type 2 diabetes with insulin, when this is a disease of high insulin, where giving more insulin should be contraindicated. Wow. Uh, so the treatment of type 2 diabetes is should be diet. You can actually reverse type 2 diabetes with a low-carb, high-fat diet and throw in some intermittent fasting. And the majority of type 2 diabetic, diabetics go into remission, and they don't need medicine, medicine, period. So that sort of thing uh, should be happening and hasn't been because the whole training of doctors and the, the whole practice of medicine has been completely, completely hijacked by, by the industry to sell more and more drugs through this whole guideline process. I mean, the guideline for diabetes is to get the hemoglobin A1C down at all costs. Well, that's nonsensical when you think about it because the high blood sugar is just a symptom of an underlying metabolic syndrome. Mm. Why don't you treat the underlying metabolic syndrome and then you reverse the hyperglycemia naturally? So th this is the sort of thing that's going on that has, I think, destroyed medicine. And so many doctors have become literally enslaved by these guidelines. They have forgotten or they never knew how to think and reason and use the basic sciences and figure things out. I mean, like Didier Raoult, brilliant guy. He didn't pull hydroxychloroquine out of a hat, okay? There is a ton of research on it already. And he he, he knew that it was gonna have some antiviral activity. So th this sort of thing, doctors have traditionally done. And so doctors have always innovated and they're doing it less and less now because of these guidelines. But more importantly, doctors have stood up to protect their individual patients against tyranny from the government. And that's what is missing now. The, the, most doctors are acquiescing to this tyranny of a vaccine, a shot, a needle in every arm, regardless of any clinical consideration. And, and you know what's funny with COVID, it, it, this really brought it out to us because it was just so stark, where they just wouldn't treat it. It'd be like, well, we don't know how to treat COVID-19. And we're like, what do you? What the hell do you think COVID-19 is? Um, I think uh, our, our mutual friend, Dr. Brian Tyson, who has saved thousands of lives, he, um, he had this great tweet uh, yesterday. If you see inflammation, use anti-inflammatories. If you see blood clots, treat blood clots. If you see pneumonia, treat pneumonia. If you see hypox hypoxemia, treat hypoxemia. If you know it's viral, use antivirals. If you do nothing, quit practicing. 
Um, and that really brought it out. It's like, you think, well, what is it? What's its mode of action? Um, how does the virus work? Um, look at the mode of actions of therapeutics out in the market and and deal with it. And if they don't get that signal from the trough that they get the slop from, they won't do anything with it. So my question to you, uh, Dr. Emmerling, is where do we go from here? You know, I advise a lot of state legislators, gubernatorial candidates, and, you know, a lot of, look, from a state, you're not going to fix Medicare and Medicaid, and that's a big problem in the insurance system. But a lot of the licensing boards and, you know, some of that stuff, there were a lot of regulations is really state-based. What sort of things, if you're in a red state and you're like, I want to declare my independence, I want to really promote or level the playing field between the cartel that our government has created, this medical, biomedical state, and your independent doctor that wants to treat people with compassion, science, and, and you know, ev- re- true, true evidence-based uh, clinical experience. What are some of the policy ideas that could get that achieved? Well, I sent you my Declaration of Independence, which I wrote many years ago and published it with AAPS right around the time of Obamacare, that that was being pushed. So on a personal physician level, doctors really are the key players in the medical industrial complex. Without doctors, they can't function. So why do we participate in this sham of EBM and uh, guideline-driven medicine? you got to pull out. And this is what I've been advocating for years. Doctors must get out of all of these third-party schemes and get back to practicing truly independent medicine. Now, when they do that, they have to reject also the guideline approach to treatment, the one-size-fits-all approach to treatment, and go back to using your scientific brain to figure out the best treatment for each individual patient So this has to happen at a granular grassroots level uh, by physicians pulling out of private uh, of of these of these setups with uh, insurance. But, doctor, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I mean, I'm all for that. But the problem I hear from everyone is they rigged the system that they can't get patients. They can't get them to afford it. They're all hooked into the either Medicare, Medicaid or, or insurance system. It's all one. And, you know, so so what what could states do to better facilitate that because without certain policy changes i don't see enough doctors having the ability to do that well there are plenty of doctors doing this now and there have the dpc the direct patient care movement is large and growing so it is happening and the, the state is limited in what it can do to facilitate this i think that they can pass legislation to defend doctors who don't go along with the guidelines, for example, right? If you're going to practice independent medicine and you're going to disregard these guidelines, you can't be brought up under charges because you're not following guidelines. I mean, that is that is crucial. And it's incredible that this is now going on, like my pal Ryan Cole being accused by the Idaho Medical Association of disinformation and prescribing uh, unapproved treatments. I mean, this is uh, fascism in its purest form. So we have to have legislation that 100% protects doctors who are practicing independent medical medicine that are that are outside the guidelines. Otherwise, it will be a problem. And that's one area where the state should step in. Yeah, and we did. We have this bill in North Dakota that does deal with it, at least for COVID, HB 1514, we're all working on. Um, wanted to get to some other areas, uh, if, if we may. Given that you're a nephrologist, I'd be remiss if we didn't cover this. So you know, your expertise is the kidneys. So I want to deal with two things on this. Number one, remdesivir. Um, you know, we had Dr. Brian Artis on the show present a lot of compelling evidence that it is killing a lot of people in the hospitals with kidney failure. Are you seeing that at all? Are you, you know, seeing kidney problems from remdesivir? Well, let me just give you my personal experience. At the outset of the pandemic, <clears throat> as of April, I came up to New York and volunteered my nephrology services at Bellevue Hospital, Manhattan VA, where they were having a huge amount of kidney failure 
and overwhelming their capacity to give uh, renal replacement dialysis treatments. And they had to invent really from scratch a peritoneal, an acute peritoneal dialysis program. And since very few people have familiarity with that older technique, and I do, I, I was helpful and I was able to contribute and help help their program get along. Uh, but the kidney failure that we saw there, which was a lot, okay, probably 30% of those hospitalized with COVID had kidney failure in Bellevue, uh, that was pre-remdesivir. So my, from my perspective, COVID alone in its acute hmm. form with blood clotting, et cetera, can cause kidney failure and other reasons too. But uh, that was be before remdesivir was being used. So it's hard to distinguish between yes. COVID and remdesivir currently. I no. can say this, the drug was, uh, as, as it was promoted from based on their pivotal trial, showed almost zero benefit. And what, the, the way I look at these trials is these are the best possible showing for the drug because the pharma company is in charge of all the data. They write the papers pretty much, okay? And they're gonna make it look as good as it can possibly ever look. Uh, well, this drug didn't look particularly good. It, it uh, shortened hospital stay by a few days. There was no effect on mortality. So why use a potentially toxic drug for such trivial benefit? Yet, it is being used in almost everybody now hospitalized for COVID-19. Why? Wow. Because of evidence-based, so-called EBM. In other words, the guidelines are, the protocols are, you must give these people remdesivir. And that protocol is, killing them. is driven by big pharma and greed and that circuitous cycle of, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is this is a worse form of fascism than, than the traditional kind of form of it because you basically have these companies now because they invoked the PREP Act, right, in February of last year, the HHS right. secretary. So they they get to, um, without any third-party verification, submit their own cooked data to the government. The government promotes it, markets it, funds it. Then, then they're exempt from liability, right, mm -hmm. because of the PREP Act. Uh, it's not just the vaccines, but it's any therapeutic or diagnostic for COVID is included in that, according to C C Congressional Research Service memo on that. So now they it's like it's forced on you. No recourse. Government funds it and they get it. And the hospitals get an extra bonus. And what you're telling me is interesting. So other doctors I've had are a little bit more sure that the kidney problems are more from the remdesivir, but what you're telling me is at least as concerning, if not more, you're saying no. You're saying, from your understanding, COVID could cause, with the blood clotting, multi-organ failure and rope in the kidneys along with the lungs and the heart. So, but but all the more so when the NIH on their own website say that it, it is a risk of moderate to severe renal failure, well, if <laughs> the type of patients you're dealing with from COVID you're going to want to tiptoe around that, not dive headfirst into something that could exacerbate that very problem. Um, it's unbelievable. But that's evidence-based medicine for you. Wow. I mean, that is insane. It is so Orwellian what, what you have presented there. Um, I do want to get to one other aspect of kidneys here. Um, and, and I know you can't give individualized, specific uh, guidelines without meeting with a patient, but I'm I'm very disturbed by what to do with people that are immunocompromised, and and you know we could say oh that's rare, but you know there's a heck of a lot of people that have kidney transplants in this country, and obviously the most common organ transplant, and you know I know people like that, and I know I sent you this study uh, from Canada, and I'm gonna have an article on it soon, where they basically show that the shots, even in their kind of warped view, that assuming that the shots even work, even four to six weeks after, they barely have any T-cell stimulation uh, in these organ transplants, although natural immunity, they said, did hold up very well in those patients. So my problem is this. I have a really good protocol that even as a non-doctor, based on all the doctors I've had on the show, giving people advice. And this is what we got to do. We got to save people. But those people, none of us want to touch. So here's their predicament. On the one hand, 
you'd think the shots are the most needed for them because the virus is bad, and that's true. But on the other hand, the shot is the most potentially dangerous for people like that, the spike protein, and it doesn't even work, particularly for those people. So they're locked down 19 months later, atrophying out, especially if they're older, can't be around people, can't do anything, there's no recourse, but then even a lot of the drugs you and I would want to use, oh, well, contraindicated, we don't know, we're too scared. What should they be doing? Do we have any good, and I know you got to get very specific depending on which drugs they're taking, but if you take a guy who's a kidney transplant patient, what does a guy like that do? Well, don't take the shot no matter what. Of course, you know my point of view on the shots. They never worked. They don't work. They have never worked. They were never tested on patients with kidney failure, uh, much less transplant patients. It would be the height of malpractice, in my view, to give a shot to kidney transplant patient or someone who's waiting to get a kidney transplant. And I'm aware that there are hospitals that have denied transplantation to people who have not been shot up, vaccinated, so to speak. And this, to me, is horrifically unethical and uh, really, really horrific. This shows us really how, how corrupted the medical system has become and how you really cannot trust them at all if they're going to have that kind of a, an approach. But I think that what I advise transplant patients is don't take the shot, have uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and zinc on hand, keep your vitamin D levels up, get outside, get natural sunlight, get fresh air, don't get the metabolic syndrome, uh, check your antibodies. You may already have been exposed and you have protection, in, in which case you're free and clear. But don't don't give in to this fear mongering on the shots. It, it's going to be it's going to go very badly for transplant patients if they start to line up for the shot. Whoa. So you 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 said a pretty bold statement there. Um, you know, obviously, my partner at Seven Cells, the sponsor of today's show, uh, their doctors will not prescribe to organ transplant patients. And I understand because it's it's a form into the abyss and it's designed to be very quick. So just, you know, to sign off on healthy people. Um, so you're saying those people potentially could take ivermectin. So could people go to the American Frontline Doctors site and, you know, get a telehealth appointment, potentially get ivermectin if they, um, even if they're an organ uh, patient? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, AFLDS has a relationship with Encore Telemedicine, who runs the telemedicine service affiliated with AFLDS. They hire and train and credential their doctors, okay? Now, I, I have some influence over their practice, uh, but I can't dictate how they practice. However, sure. I, can, uh, it, I can discuss what their approach is if someone is, a, is an organ transplant recipient. But in terms of treating a, an acute case of COVID, which can be devastating to anybody, certainly organ transplant recipients as well, a short course of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine will be fine, okay? Mm. It will be fine. So they should not hesitate to take it. Uh, I wouldn't say take it prophylactically, but yes, but yes, sure. if you get an infection, jump in there and take it and take the Regeneron monoclonal antibodies, okay? Treat it as you would any acute COVID case uh, and jump all over it with early treatment. Wow. So that, that that's important. And, and and this is the thing because everyone's like, oh, that's that's potential. I mean, they're an organ trend. They can't they're everything's contraindicated. Really? And the shots aren't contraindicated? And then they don't even work. Like this is what is so sad in their own literature. What do you do with a guy like that where he probably screwed up his body and his gonna organs will fail quicker, have a shorter life, you know, you know, because usually there's a certain average of how long an organ lasts for when you get a transplant. Who knows what it does to that? But then it doesn't even work for the shot. And then they're like, hey, I got nothing because everything's contraindicated. Well, the biggest contraindication is dying of COVID. <laughs> you got to treat it. Um, so you're saying there's no real evidence that the medications they're on necessarily um, are, are contraindicated. So with that, I want to close with, could you just give us a little bit of an overview? I know AFLDS was slammed like some of these other services in July, August when this thing broke out. How is it working out the telehealth? And then the second thing is, could you give us a little bit of a synopsis in terms of 
the nature of what you're seeing, the symptoms, and what is and isn't working uh, best for the protocols with this iteration of the virus? Well, having had Delta myself, I can give you a first-hand description. Okay, it wasn't a fun thing to go through, but it, I, in all honesty, it did not really slow me down that much. I took a course of ivermectin and was out and about and biking and walking and uh, traveling uh, shortly after, you know, a few weeks after the onset of symptoms. Uh, I can say that the telehealth, the telehealth stuff has been the saving grace for the country, frankly, and not just AFLDS, but others as well have stepped up and have provided uh, telemedicine consultations for patients for acute COVID or who are worried about having uh, get, getting prophylactic treatment and trying to make these treatments available has been, I think, a huge factor in decreasing morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Delta, we know, is more contagious. No question about it. It is very contagious. And in a way, that may be good because a lot of people have been exposed and we're either at or very close to herd immunity around the country. But it, uh, it can be nasty, especially with uh, high-risk people. But the key there, again, is early treatment. And it is successful. We, we had a huge surge of consultations in August, September. I mean, we were doing 60,000 a month. Wow. Uh, that is now way down to under 20,000. And that, that is due to the fact that the, the Delta wave has peaked and is, and is subsiding which means really that we are at a herd immunity threshold. So I, I'm encouraged and I hope that our, our, our goal now is to protect people who are being forced to get the vaccine. We have various lawsuits. Uh, we have a lawsuit in New York against the vaccine passport that is just being heard this week. We have a lawsuit against Kaiser Permanente against their vaccine mandate, uh, suing the military, you know, all these things, people who are being threatened with forced, almost really forced vaccination. Because when you're threatening someone's livelihood, it's one hair breadth away from actually grabbing them physically and jabbing them, is it not? I mean, this is coercion, heavy handed as it gets. Yep. So uh, that, that's been our focus. And we're, we're continuing to provide the telemedicine stuff. Who knows what's gonna happen? I mean, we're in flu season now, and I'm, I'm pretty uh, convinced that we're going to see a lot of flu cases get called COVID again. Uh, so again, treating with hydroxychloroquine, zinc, uh, ivermectin is safe. These drugs are safe. They've been demonized, but they've been around forever and they're safe. So we're, you know, we're pushing that. I think pe people like Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, uh, Didier, Raul, Zevzelenko, these people are modern heroes and they have saved thousands and thousands of lives. Brian Tyson, by the way, who I just got to meet, uh, what a wonderful guy and what, what he's done is just fabulous. So I'm, I'm proud to be part of this group of doctors who, who is put, pushing back in a major way and this organization that is pushing back in a major way. And I think that if AFLDS had not and Simone Gold had not stood up and pushed back when she did, the juggernaut would have rolled over yes. the entire yes. country. I, I think there's no doubt, despite most people still being denied, not having access, but the work of all of us together has definitely percolated with hundreds of thousands. It, it, there's no way scientifically we could prove it, but there's no question it's having its effect of keeping people out of the hospitals, and it has kept the numbers down you know, st you know, starting in mid-September, really, when we got a handle on this and warn people, like, you got to get treated, you got to get treated. Um, so, again, uh, folks, I would recommend, you know, our partner, Seven Cells, they're great for expeditiously getting it, I think, for the best price, um, only $25 consultation. But if you're someone that is a little bit more of a serious case, A, Seven Cells might deny you if you put down your – if you're honest about your conditions – and B, you do want someone live to be able to talk to. Seven Cells is set up not to waste that time. Just boom, 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 get it to as many people. So AFLDS is a good choice. Um, and you'll get uh, these doctors where you could, you know, potentially get it even if you have a serious condition. And then also ask maybe for some other things as well, other questions, advice.
um, which is very important always to have a live doctor. That really is the ideal. Unfortunately, we just have to work around this. Um, Dr. Ammerling, I hope you keep us updated on our fight for medical freedom, uh, the tyranny of of uh, this this medical dictatorship, uh, this, this evidence-based medicine Orwellian term. Thanks so much for your presentation today. And folks, we are just about out of time. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.